Welcome to the Missouri Wind and Solar Podcast. I'm your host, Wes Shank, and I'm here with our co-host and general manager, David McNairis. And today's special guest star is Sam Buffington, head of our R&D group. Each week, we review the latest, greatest happenings in wind and solar and how they will impact your alternative energy projects. If you'd like more information about anything you hear on the podcast, check out all of our educational resources at windandsolar.com, including links to over 300 of our YouTube videos, or feel free to reach out to our Seymour, Missouri-based sales team at 417-708-5359. You can also email them at sales at windandsolar.com, and if you really want to go all in, Come to our hands-on workshop in Seymour. David teaches that class, and he'll even buy you a Subway sandwich. And you can get all these details on our website, windandsolar.com. Hey, thank you, Sam. I appreciate you coming in today. Thank braving, you for having me, Wes. Braving the snow to come in and do a podcast. I know this is exciting stuff. We drug you in over here and got you off the phone for a few minutes to talk with us about uh, we've been on a theme lately with lithiums. And mm-hmm. so just continuing down that path, we wanted to talk today about everything they're cracked up to be. I mean, we wanted to kind of go through that and explore that subject with you and your in-depth knowledge on this. So McDerris has got the questions. Yeah. All right. And yeah. I've just thought the eye candy that's, for radio. That's what you're here for. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Harvey. <laughs> so on lithium batteries, I mean, like Wes just said, I mean, what they're cracked up to be, I mean, that seems to be where the industry's trending right now. Why is that? Why are we seeing the big trend to, to the lithium battery versus the old standby flood of lead acid or the AGM battery? What's the big push? What makes them worth it? Excellent question. So there are several factors involved in what we're talking about here. The biggest one is going to be cost of ownership over the lifespan. Other factors, which we'll, we'll go into more details on, are going to be the actual charging profile of the batteries and their longevity as far as, you know, the the actual ability of the battery to sustain heavy loads under high demand. Cost has actually also came down. So not just is the cost of ownership reduced significantly, but the cost to get into a system now has reduced dramatically to the point that you can now get certain high quality 10-year warranty lithium batteries for literally a lower cost per usable kilowatt hour than, than a high quality AGM. So with that, there's very few reasons to go to a lithium, but there are some operational pitfalls that need to be addressed for customers to be able to utilize this equipment effectively, because it's not just like the old school batteries. There are some things that if you don't know what's going to happen there, can be quite terrifying for customers because they worry that they've destroyed thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Are they like the flooded lead acid in the AGM? You just hook them up and you can overcharge them and you can over discharge them. I mean, do they have anything that that would protect them from doing that versus like the old? They do have protections. Yes. And those protections are actually part of the reason that people panic. So the protection is what's known as a battery management system. Easiest way to describe it is it is a internal computer that regulates what happens with the individual cells in a battery. The reason that is important leads back into fears and concerns people have about fire and things of that nature, which really, with modern, particularly modern prismatic lithium cells, are just not a concern anymore with the high quality of the management systems and the way that these packs are now assembled. So, you know, with an old school lead acid, you might have had, you know, say an Outback or an Ames power inverter, and you didn't have any control over the ability to discharge the battery, so you can actually run them down too low. More modern Outback equipment, a lot of the SkyMax equipment, SolarC equipment now have, MPP is another one, they, they all now have these ability to control discharge levels, which do help with the lead acid, but they're really there for the lithiums 
because of what's called a, I call it BMS shutdown. So it's where the computer says, this is bad. If I go beyond this point, I could potentially damage the battery. So that BMS shutdown causes something that most people aren't familiar with, right? Normally, if an inverter goes bad, or even with a vehicle, right, you get in, the lights are dim, you try to crank it, it won't start, the battery just isn't charged enough. Well, with a lithium battery, it'll run right up until it doesn't, and that BMS just shuts it off, and then you read low or no voltage coming out of the battery. That's like when you've got a lithium drill, and you're drilling, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't gently die, it It just dies, yes. So let's say it died, you know, it gets down and it does die. I mean, how do you restart it? I mean, just by the charge controller, does it restart it? Not usually. So most controllers that people are still running, and there are a few that don't do this, right? There are a couple, you know, Solark units have an activate battery feature, which is really helpful. But for the most part, you know, you guys have always talked about controllers and things in your podcast before. They require battery power to operate. So if that system gets too far out of whack and it actually shuts itself down, you can't restart it with the charge controller. So now you're left with especially on 48-volt DC systems or 24 volts even, there's no convenient source for most people to restart the battery on their own until they start thinking about it a little bit. So this is not something I normally would recommend as a standard charging procedure, obviously, but you can do the, we'll call it a field expedient method of turning the system back on. The term everyone uses is wake the system back up, whereby you would very carefully through the use of a disconnect switch connect the minimum charging voltage required directly to the battery from typically a solar panel. So let's say you've got a 48 volt pipes battery and it's went into a self-shutdown mode and you can't reactivate it with the BMS switch on the front, which is a cool feature no other lithium's currently really got, at least to my knowledge. I'm sure there's one out there, but this is the first one we've had hands on in the store, whereby you would manually connect, say, 60 volts worth of solar panel. So two of our Z-Shine 450s or something like that would be about 80 under open circuit, which would be acceptable and manually connect them to the battery and turn the battery on. Because what that battery management system is looking for is an outside source of DC. If it doesn't have that outside source of DC, the management system stays shut down. So after you do that, typically 20 to 30 minutes is all that's required to get enough of a charge in there. A lot of people, their first reaction is they hit it real quick. Okay, it's on. And then they try to hook their inverter back up. Okay, so what's happening is, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I'm always dumbing things down. So... The battery sees that it's got something coming in. Mm -hmm. It turns itself on. Then the charge controller would see that the battery is on. It would come on Mm -hmm. and then it accept. It would accept whatever your PV Mm -hmm. that you've got set up out there. So it's really kind of a backwards. It is kind of backwards. But the tricky part with that is that normally when these types of conditions occur, people find out because they were running a heavy load and the thing shut off. And just like. Traditionally, you know, the the average person that, in my experience, is troubleshooting something. If they blow a fuse, the very first thing they do is they just go out and they immediately put a new fuse in. They don't look for the reason why. Similarly, a lot of times, because now it's dark, right, people are in a panic. They're not necessarily always thinking fully clearly about the situation. They get the system started back up after they've talked to us, and then they immediately turn their inverter back on because it's dark or I'm worried about my food. And really, that's not the right procedure, especially if you have all of your breakers on. Because now you've unhooked your solar array. It's not active yet because you've had to disassemble it to manually connect a panel to it. And you turn everything back on, and now you've placed a heavy load on a dead battery. Boom, Boom. the BMS has shut it down again, and that really makes people panic. So the correct procedure is to let the system charge for 20 minutes, an hour even sometimes, get 500, 600 watt hours in that battery bank so that now it has a baseline voltage. You can unhook the panel, turn your inverter back on, 
start a backup generator or you have time to hook the solar panels back up now and the system can begin to recover. Well, or would the other thing to do is just pop all your breakers off? Yes, that will help, but that doesn't necessarily solve the issue if you have a high-demand inverter, right? Let's say that you're running, you've upgraded to lithiums from a traditional system and you've got a 12-kilowatt Ames inverter. It uses 200 watts an hour because it's on. You're pulling 200 watts out of the battery. If you don't let the system charge up a little bit first, it's going to shut down again. That's just what it's going to do. Not necessarily, again, an issue with a solar because it has that activate battery feature. It'll take PV through on its own and restart in the morning without you having to do anything with it. So okay. the solar will do that because yes. that's what I was going to ask. What about like the MPP? MPP does also have an activate battery feature okay. as long as you turn it on properly. And both these units that we're talking about for our customers don't know, these are what they call an all-in-one unit. They have the controller and the inverter built into one. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a question I had. If they didn't do that, if uh, let's say that you had an older unit that mm-hmm. was an all-in-one that didn't have that activate feature, the only recourse you had then is to actually directly hook that mm-hmm. panel to that battery. Yes. That correct? Yeah. So almost all traditional charge control systems and also some of your original earlier all-in-ones were that way. That was your only choice was a manual connection to the PV. So what I hear you saying, and again, I always correct me if I'm wrong, is like in a situation like in my house where mm-hmm. I've got PV, I've got mm-hmm. solar, I've got Evolt. We'll set mm-hmm. the wind aside for mm-hmm. just the conversation on this. So if I ran my batteries down to zero mm-hmm. and they shut themselves off, would my solar wake everything up the next morning mm-hmm. once there was enough PV coming in? Yep. So there really wouldn't be anything I had to do other than to wait. That's correct. So like before when you had the FM100 and Radian system, that condition could occur to you, right? That would be something that could happen where you over-discharge the batteries. Now it won't turn itself back on because the FM100 needed battery power to operate. The Radian needed battery power to operate. So it wouldn't even matter if you had a backup generator with a traditional inverter. You turn it on, it doesn't do anything because it won't run the electronics in the inverter charger that you've got. I think that's part of the reason you see this industry trend towards some of these all-in-ones is it goes hand-in-hand with those lithium batteries and that management system. They've developed hardware now that won't get damaged by 400 volts plus DC going straight in when there's no battery. And with that, they're able to utilize it to activate the BMS. That's part of the reason it's all one solution is that's how they have to make the circuit work. Gotcha. So what Wes and I talked and Crystal and I talked in the last episode or one of the previous episodes about temperatures on batteries, on the lithium due to the BMS, again, what's the temperature range that you need to operate these batteries in? Good question. And this is going to be one of those areas where I'll expand slightly on this is one of those deals where you're like, are lithium batteries worth it? You know, what's the reason the industry trend? Temperature is still a reason, in my opinion, that there are applications where AGM and lead-acid are much better suited. Even though you lose capacity with a cold AGM or lead-acid battery below freezing, you won't necessarily ruin the battery offhand, and you won't have a BMS shutdown offhand because there's no BMS. So, yes, you might lose 40% capacity when you get a Trojan or a Crown, you know, like a CR430 below zero, you know, below zero Fahrenheit, but you didn't ruin it. With a lithium, what you're looking at there is if you get that battery below freezing, below 32 Fahrenheit, the battery management system in most of them, not all have a low temp, not all of them do, but in most of them, it's going to shut the system off again because of that external factor. The current industry solution for that is normally a heating pad or some sort of a heating circuit, but they usually use 75 to 100 watts per hour per battery for that. You start doing that math and you say, well, you know, I've got, you know, let's say I have three Simplifies or three E-Flexes or three Pites. 
I'm using somewhere in the neighborhood of 150, 300 watts per hour, depending on the manufacturer and their heating solution. Well, if I've got a three kilowatt battery and I've got three of them and I'm using 300 watts an hour overnight, I have lost 30% capacity. No different than an AGM. I would have just not had that 30% to begin with. So the heating is a band-aid on a bigger problem and it comes in with storage location. So if you can't climate control the lithium battery, it is going to be a situation if you live in an environment where you regularly see cold temperatures like we do here, and it's not as much of a problem in Texas or Florida, but if you live in that environment, lithium batteries may not be the right solution if you can't store them inside the house or in a garage where you can keep it above 40. I like that. Is there any way to monitor, externally monitor that battery or anything? So external monitoring, you can through the Midnight Classic does offer that feature. The Solar does have a temperature measuring system, but it's really more for temperature compensation as it stands right now. So the external temperature monitoring is actually not easy with an integrated solution that I've seen. I'm sure there may be someone out there that has that built into a controller, but I've not seen one that has it yet, or I would be after it to have that. So is Guardian with Fortress, is it going to... I believe the Guardian will when it fully integrates with all their equipment. Right now, as it stands at the recording of this podcast, it just works with their Flex battery. It right. doesn't work with the Vault Max. That is set to change. They're working on finishing up the software. But as we're recording this right now, it does not. Now, it will have that feature because the Fortress BMS does monitor temperature for that low temp cutoff. So by nature of that, it'll provide that information. And it should then also, after the CAN communication features are all done, should allow that to communicate also to the Solark. What's the, the Amplify? Does it? Amplify does not have a low temp cutoff. Okay. Yeah. So Amplify and Simplify, last time I went through the data sheet, and everyone's updating their stuff all I mean, the time, I knew, but it doesn't. I knew the regular Simplify didn't have yeah. much yeah. of a... Yeah. The Amplify uh, has closed loop communication solely for battery balancing. Okay. I knew that there was communication. I just didn't know... Okay. Just to define terms, because people may be listening to this and aren't familiar, open-loop communication and closed-loop communication are things you're going to see on data sheets. And it's primarily with lithium batteries and, quote-unquote, you know, what problems, right? Open-loop communication means they're just working off battery voltage, just like batteries always have. Closed-loop means you're working with communication cables, typically Ethernet cables, between batteries and the inverter. Have you got any more questions? Because I do have one. Nope. Okay. My question is, you know, we started this off as... You know, is lithium all it's cracked up to be? What else is out there that's coming? I mean, because there's always a better... Yeah, there's some talk right now about different graphene batteries and what they call iron error batteries. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard of the, like, Iron Edison and that type of iron chemistry as well. But, you know, as far as the batteries that are on the horizon that are going to be cost competitive with lithium, I don't personally see anything in the next five years. Well, so where was it we were talking about? Wasn't it Tesla was working on some kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I hate to say this because it sounds well, a, a nuclear no, battery. or they yeah. had used Well, it's some, called a NDB, nano diamond battery. It's not just in the test phase right now or in the making phase. They've made it. They're actually actively working with them right now. Now, right now they're on a very small scale. We're talking like double A size, things of that nature. They are something to keep your eye out for because when they get it perfected, Tesla is actually looking not just for running their small electronics in their vehicles. We're talking the whole EV vehicle running off of these. These are going to have a major impact in the market. As they stand right now, they're going to, when everything gets up and running on them like they think they can get it, they will actually be cheaper to manufacture than lithium batteries. But what's the big deal with them? The reason these ever came about, by the way, is NASA. 
NASA was looking for things because they were sending these space probes out that they needed for their batteries to last long, long periods of time, over 28 years. I lots mean, of cycles. Lots and lots of cycles, right? Because they were cycling them very hard. They were sending, transmitting data back. And they expect some of these batteries. I mean, this is reading the information that you just get on the internet. You just find the same. There's talking NASA expects 28,000 years of life expectancy out of this battery. I mean, not 28 years, not 280 years, 28,000 years. Not 28,000 cycles, but 28,000 years. Now, they may only be cycling that you know, once every four days or whatever the case may be, and that's why they're doing that. But they expect them in cell phones, they expect the battery to last anywhere from nine to 15 years. And that's heavily used in cell phones, as you well know. You use your cell phone daily. You know, charge it daily. Charge it daily. Deplete it daily. I mean, a lot of people go all the way to back to fully going to zero and back up. That's some of the newer technology that we're seeing. That iron air battery is very interesting It as is. Well. Yes, it is a very interesting battery. It's one of those deals where I'll always believe it when I see it, right? They've been telling you guys since you were my age that we were going to have flying cars. And oh, yeah. Said, yeah. No, I, I get it. You didn't get yours? Not yet. <laughs> There's a song, Where's My Jetpack At? <laughs> All right. We got anything else we need to bring into the lithium conversation? No, Let's I think see. right now lithium is... Uh, it's it. Yeah, for it's the, it. And part of the... You had asked earlier in the conversation what was driving some of this. The big driving factor was that prismatic cell manufacturers over in China determined that rather than attempting to continually increase capacity and to do all of these things to make the cells more compact... They chose instead to focus on producing the cells cheaper. And that's the reason you've seen this trend where in the last two years, obviously there's lots of inflationary pressures, but lithium cells have came down cost per kilowatt hour, whereas AGM and lead acid have increased. That's because of that desire to flood the market with equipment. All right. Well, there you go. There's all you need to know about how lithium is racked up. Thanks for checking out the podcast, and we appreciate you tuning in. Thank you for downloading and listening to the podcast today. If you have a question you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast or just want to say hello, email us at radio at windandsolar.com. As always, check out our store at windandsolar.com and buy some stuff. Your financial support underwrites our educational outreach like the podcast, YouTube channel, and local STEM collaboration. It also keeps Lucy and her doggy chicken treats. Thanks again for listening.